0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Today's reading is taken from John chapter 19 and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 16. Then Pilots took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified.
1: Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of each and every one of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, as some of you know, I studied law at college, and when I got the degree, I stopped. Any lawyer will tell you that actually becoming a lawyer, the hard work starts then. Um, But uh, I got converted at college and I was already taking the first steps towards an ordained ministry. I like to think I switched uh, from law to grace. But any law student will have read enough law reports to know how boring they can be. They're not gripping page turners. On the other hand, we probably all watched... TV, legal dramas, uh, scene trials that were gripping to the end because so much depended on them, people's hopes and futures, never mind justice itself. Here uh, in John's Gospel is a, a law report that reads like a drama, but it's not a work of fiction. Tacitus, the famous first century Roman historian, mentions Jesus. He writes in his annals about how Jesus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And John here is writing that history. It's not fiction. He tells of a case with a twist few saw coming and which sucks us into its drama because all our futures. Hang on it. But it's a case that was real, was recorded, and these are the details of the history. Now, you've met pretty much all the cast as you began the trial last week, but uh, there was Pilate himself, weak but in a position of power. There were the Jewish religious leaders who would stop at nothing to get what they wanted. There was Jesus, the man in the dock who says very little, but whose presence dominates the whole scene. And there's justice herself. She's on the cast list, but never makes an appearance, doesn't have a single line to say. And as we pick the story up in John chapter 19, we're heading towards the end and the verdict itself It's going to be a long time before it's actually delivered, but people have shown their true colors already. Pilate is weak. Uh, The religious leaders are ruthless. There's only going to be one outcome, however tortured the route to get there. And tortured is the word for the prisoner. Pick it up at chapter 19 and verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Well, of course, it's just what you do if you think someone's innocent. Although it turns out to be Pilate's next desperate strategy to get Jesus released, he's flogged, brutalized, made the butt of crude, cruel barrack-room humor. Look at verse 2. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. And then Pilate declares him innocent again. I can find no basis for a charge against him. And parades Jesus in front of them, declaring, dripping with sarcasm. Verse 5, here is the man. Big threat, says Pilate, as Jesus is exposed, scarred, bloodied, weak, weary. But there's no sympathy Never mind mercy in the priest's hearts. Verse 6, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. They want blood. And they won't stop until they get it. This is religion at its ugliest. Pilate again protests Jesus' innocence, but the stakes are raised further with the claim that he's broken Jewish blasphemy laws. He's claimed to be, verse 7, the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He'd been uncomfortable all along, and now there's talk of gods of some kind involved. Pilate might have been a superstitious pagan, but he lived in a God culture, and it unnerves him. And Jesus doesn't help him. Look, verse 9, where do you come from, he asked Jesus, heaven or earth? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate's already shown he won't listen to or follow the truth, and Jesus doesn't answer those kind of questioners. Do you remember King Herod couldn't get a word out of Jesus either? But then you see, all Herod wanted was a show, a miracle trick. He wasn't interested in the truth. Pilate still clings to his sense of power, though. Look at verse 10. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? I represent Caesar, the greatest power on earth bullies like to flaunt their power but Jesus is unimpressed you would have no power if it were not given you from above actually your power comes from my father which is why he goes on uh, to say The one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Caiaphas, the high priest, bears even more responsibility and guilt because he's meant to know and teach and do the will of God, that Father. And rather like a fish thrashing the water long after it's been hooked. Pilate tried to set Jesus free, verse 12, but he can't cope with the screaming Jewish leaders. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. It may have just been a casual taunt, but there could be something a little more behind it. There are some who think that that title, Friend of Caesar, was a kind of badge an honor, a bit like having an MBE. If you let this man go, you could have your honour stripped from you. You're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And this Jesus has claimed to be a king. So what are you doing releasing a claimant to the throne? What would Rome make of that? Think of intelligence services today. What if they'd held a terrorist under arrest and then released him and found he'd gone straight off to commit some awful atrocity. Even Pilate knows the game is up. So in verse 13, Jesus and the judgment seat are brought out. There's one last hopeless attempt is made. Verse 15, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. There seems to be no end to their newfound and, let's be honest, short-lived loyalty to Caesar. No end to the depths of hypocrisy they'll sink to. So, 16, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. He throws in the towel. This is the verdict. Pilate... Handed him over. Although, to be more accurate, I should say these are the verdicts. Pilate's verdict on Jesus, yes, but actually also history's verdict on Pilate. Pilate's a great warning to all of us who think we can sit on the fence over Jesus. There is no fence. Four times he declares Jesus innocent. Six times he tries to release him and get him off his hands without actually releasing him. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. At last, he did get Jesus off his hands. He washed his hands of him, only you can't. History's verdict is clear. If people know anything about Pontius Pilate, the one thing they know about him is summed up by that line in the creed. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. So when someone asks you, what's your verdict on Jesus? Remember, your answer will say more about you than it does about Jesus. Remember, the verdict you give reveals the verdict that's on you the verdicts what else have we got to learn from this story what more can we learn about well not ourselves but Jesus himself there's a saying tucked away in this trial that's a bit of a twist in a story it's not last minute evidence it's certainly not a last minute rescue justice is still waiting in the wings when the curtain falls but the twist is that as his enemies conspire to destroy Jesus, all they do is actually the making of him. Look, one of the things John does quite frequently is to leave in his account lines where someone spoke truer than they knew. Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, advising the others that it would be good if one man died for the people. Well, it certainly would, but not in the way he imagined. And Pilate does it too here. Look back at verse 5. As Jesus is brought in front of the crowd, he says, here is the man. For Pilate, that line's full of irony. You know, what a wreck of a human being. What a parody of a king. But for John, now here's a, a real man. His suffering is his appeal. Here is the God of the abused. I mean, Jesus has been through it the physical battering, the abuse. He was violated. He is the God of the abused. He knows the mockery and the ridicule. And our hearts and minds have been full of abuse in the last 10 days or so from schoolboys in football clubs to that huge outpouring of hurt and abuse following Sarah Everard's murder. In church circles this week, the publication of that report into the awful abuse in the church in Wimbledon and Jonathan Fletcher. I mean, the hurt and the damage that's beginning to surface. What does someone do with it? Well, here's one place to bring it to the God of the abused, the God who knows what it's like. Here is the man. And it isn't just, you see, the physical pain and suffering. He's presented as a grotesque figure with a tattered robe and a weird spiky headdress, more clown than king. Bruce Milne puts it this way. He says that touches us deeply, for there's almost nothing we dread more than being thought ridiculous. Most people, in fact, are much more ready to be thought bad than silly. Nothing so readily penetrates the armor of our self esteem than mocking laughter. Yet it was with precisely that ringing in his ears from the soldier's ridicule that Jesus appeared for the further mockery of the crowd. Here is the man. We hate mockery and shame, but who else has a God who knows just what that feels like? Others rush to point to the strength and the power of their God. Ours knows weakness. At the lowest of times, he is still God with us. Andrew and Rachel Wilson have written a book, The Life You Never Expected, about how as young parents they discover that both their children have severe autism. And the book describes how they begin to handle the issue and also tackles what he calls the why question. And as he writes about it, Andrew quotes that C.S. Lewis book, The Magician's Nephew, one of the Narnia series of books for children. And in it, Diggory, uh, the little boy, comes to Aslan, the lion, who is the Jesus figure, and asks him to heal his dying mother. And to begin with, Aslan does nothing. And when Diggory pleads with him again through his tears, he gets a shock. Up till then, Lewis writes... He'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in despair, he looked up at its face, and what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, A wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears, compared with Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother, than he was himself. And Andrew writes, we worship a crying God, a God who became like us and suffered bereavement and loss and wept at gravesides and cried out in anguish as he died. So when we experience suffering and face all the unanswered why questions, we may never know what the answer is, but we know for sure what the answer is not. It isn't because God does not love us. It isn't because God does not care. It isn't because he's distant or unsympathetic or cold or merciless. The lion has tears in his eyes. And although I'll never understand all that he's doing, I know that he isn't doing it because he does not love me. The cross proves that. The real man who knows real suffering and his sufferings, his appeal. What do I do with the hurt and damage? I I cry out, I shout at. I can turn to the God of the abused, the God who's with us. But the God who's with us is also the God who's for us. Here is the man, a real man, yes, but representative man too. His death is our rescue. He's fully human, so he can represent us. Think of it this way. Jesus stood trial as a blasphemer and as a traitor. And sin leaves us looking like that too. Blasphemers because that's the nature of sin. We want to play God in his world. Remember that first sin, the temptation in the Garden of Eden, uh, eat the fruit, and as Adam and Eve are worried about the consequences, they're told, you'll be like God. It's why we do it. But traitor too, because the heart of sin is a rebellion against God's rule. And there'll come a day when a far greater judgment seat than Pilate's will be in front of us, the judgment seat of God. And the charges against us on that day will be just the ones Jesus faced, that we are blasphemers and traitors. And our only hope, but our sure hope, is that Jesus stands before that judgment seat as our representative, facing our charges, standing in our place, having taken our judgment. God for us, the God of the the absurd, uh, the God of the abused, his suffering is his appeal, God with us, but he's God for us, his death is our rescue, and if you've stopped trying to get Jesus off your hands. Stop trying to hand him over to someone who will take him out of your life. Stop trying to sit on the fence that doesn't exist over Jesus if you've identified with him. If you've embraced him as the one to represent you. Then the words of that old hymn take on fresh meaning. Man of sorrows What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's give ourselves a moment just to marvel afresh. Just to be thankful afresh. Just to repeat afresh. Praise God. What a saviour.